welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. It's since I moved back east, you know, it's the first time in a long time it's feeling very Christmassy. In fact, me and Joanne went and got the Christmas tree the other night. And when we had them in Burbank, it was always funny because Burbank, the trees were always so expensive. I mean, the, tr- the school I used to go to that started charging 90 bucks. So I went to Home Depot and they charged like 70 bucks, which is crazy. So this year we're back and it's cold and we're excited for Christmas. And I don't know what the pa- I'm going to pay for a Christmas tree, but I have to get one. And they say there's a big shortage. Well, I go to Home Depot and it was tax included 35 bucks. It's a beautiful thing. So I'm in such a Christmas spirit. It's decorated. It's not too cold. So I'm not feeling, you know, I'm not missing California. Yeah, I know if it gets really cold at Christmas, I'll like it, but I'll get a little crazy. So anyway, I hope you people are getting ready for Christmas. And we have a great show. We have a gentleman who's uh, an amazing bassist, uh, in a great band. And he's just, blows my mind is he's like this complete entrepreneur. And my guess is David Ellison. How you doing, David? Hey, how are you there, Steve? Good, good. Now, now you live in Arizona. Do, do you enjoy Christmas? I mean, what's the feeling out there? Because I've, I've been to Arizona. I lived in L.A. for a long time. It's hot. Well, today is the first day it actually feels like a cold, gray, gloomy, wintry kind of day. <laughs> I just went outside before the interview. I went to the gym this morning. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and, um, you know, it's funny. It's been in the 80s. I mean, literally up until, like, yesterday. And, um, and yesterday it was cold. It got down below 70. Uh, so we pull our jackets and our gloves out out here in Arizona when it drops that cold. And uh, today it, it actually feels like uh, like we're heading into winter now. No, well, that's good. It's, it's the holidays. That's always good. Now, I got to ask you, you know, you're, you're involved with Megadeth, but you have this coffee company. Now, it just, that's something that I don't think a lot about, like, like a rocker. With coffee, how did the whole coffee company come about? And people, it's called Ellison Coffee. But how did that happen? And then, sure, sure. Well, I've been I've been pretty active drinking coffee since we started Megadeth back in 1983. Our very first drummer, Dijon Carruthers, uh, he he uh, he and I were kind of like coffee buddies, you know. And of course, we were real poor, so we couldn't afford good coffee. And the big, massive. Uh, sort of European coffee house movements uh, that we know today, mostly by way of Starbucks, you know, that hadn't hit America yet. So, um, you know, I would just drink coffee. I mean, McDonald's, whatever, you know. Um, and it's funny, McDonald's is still the number one coffee company in the, in the world just because of their mass swath of sales, you know. Probably followed pretty closely by Starbucks and, you know, some of the other ones that, that we all know as standalone coffee companies. But, um, you know, I, I was introduced to um, my very first roaster about two years ago um, by way of a, a production assistant that was working with Megadeth. And, and uh, it started with uh, uh, Paul Wagoner, um had a small little company called Parliament Coffee. And he, he's also a guitar player in a uh, heavy metal group called Between the Buried and Me. So we hit it off as, as coffee guys first and also had the music background. But he and his wife had a at a, uh, you know, a coffee uh, roasting business in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so yeah, I came up with the names. He came up with the, the roasts, and, um, and we just worked together on that. And then, you know, we, we, we initially launched it online, ellisoncoffeeco.com. And, you know, I wanted to first go to my fans, you know, because a lot of this is, is lifestyle stuff. And, and, you know, today is a day when I think all musicians – you know, we've always been entrepreneurs, really, you know, starting bands and doing everything that we do. And I think now at, you know, sort of my um, point in my career and, and my age and everything, you know, you start to bring your lifestyle in for your fans to enjoy. And mine happens to be coffee. 
Now, what, what's the whole process? Though? Like you said, you know, the roast and everything. Like when you sit down and you decide, because once again, you have your fans. And, and the thing is, fans are the toughest critics. I mean, some of them will love Megadeth. And if they don't like your coffee, they're going to give you a hard time because, you know, people are. But so when you sit down, right, right. When you sit down with the coffee, do you have, did you, you start off with a whole bunch of flavors, like a roast? Or did you sit there and go, here's what I want, and let's just get to that? Probably like a song. You know, you, you know the song you well, want. Well, you know, it, yeah, no, no, good good question. I mean, my first thing was, when Paul and I were talking coffee, was <clears throat> I always like Indonesian coffees. I like Sumatra from the island of Sumatra, which is an Indonesian island, um, and I like it. I've, I've since learned, you know, Sumatra is a base coffee used in a lot of kind of dark roast coffees because it, it has sort of a neutral flavor. It adds that nice dark uh, flavor, um, kind of a nice dark, you know, undertone on, on coffees. And a lot of blends are built on top of Sumatra. Um, and so I, I was talking to Paul about it. And he goes, he goes, trust me, I, I just by hearing you talk, I can already tell you I have a perfect bean, but it's a Brazilian bean. And I said, well, I don't really care for Brazilian beans. <laughs> so he, he sent me some coffee. I tried it. And sure enough, his Brazilian bean was awesome. And I've even since learned that in Brazil, there's there's different coffees that are sold internally to Brazil, and there's uh, different coffees that they export out of Brazil. So my experience with Brazilian uh, beans, I was largely, um, you know, kind of prejudiced by what I was drinking internally inside of Brazil when I would go there and travel there. So, um, you know, the exports and all these kind of things is kind of a whole other level of, of coffee, you know. So... And then I came up with the first name, Roast in Peace, which, of course, is kind of a play on, on Megadeth's Rust in Peace, as well as far as everybody else knows, you know, Rest in Peace. So it kind of became this funny, kind of very heavy metal, uh, you know, kind of name. <clears throat> and, and then I wanted to get a, uh, a medium roast, uh, which, which we decided on Kenya, because mostly I came up with the name Kenya Thrash. And, um, and we found a really good Kenya bean. And Kenya can be a bit seasonal. It's not always available, but um, it's currently available now uh, for us. So then we moved to our medium, and then I wanted to have a light roast. And so that's when we did our um, uh, rock and roast. Originally, we rolled it out as She-Wolf because we did it uh, a year ago as uh, during October, which is National Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And we wanted to, we bought these pink bags from a bag company and they donated a portion of those proceeds over to Breast Cancer Awareness. And we've now since transitioned that into our, our new roast, which is uh, the Rock and Rose, um, which is a Nicaraguan, started originally with a Nicaraguan uh, bean. And we have now partnered with the Rose, <coughs> excuse me, the Rose organization, uh, the Rose.org down in Houston, Texas, which is a, uh, a really terrific uh, breast cancer um, uh, organization that helps women with mammograms and breast cancer awareness and these things. So we give a portion of the proceeds off of Rock and Rose to that. So we have essentially a dark, a medium, and a light roast. Now, what catches my just this, I, I'm intrigued by entrepreneurship and stuff like that. But what 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 amazes me is you know, you know Megadeth, you know, is a you know thrash metal. And years ago, when you you know, were in the beginning stages of the band, did you ever like correlate that? coffee and your and your fans because you know everyone has a certain you know heavy metal they have a, a think they think oh well you know stereotype of what the fans are like i mean it's just did you ever sit there and think that your fans would just be like going crazy over your coffee because it's something that we don't correlate the two well you know yeah back in the original you look even back in the original days when it was you know sex drugs and rock and roll and all that it was in the 80s and not, you know it was early the 80s 
Um, you know, I, I quit partying by 1990. So for me, I, you know, I've lived a clean lifestyle ever since then. And, you know, but coffee was there all the way with me, you know, whether I was partying or whether I was sober, you know, coffee was always there with me. So for me, it's really, it's just kind of a thread of my entire life. Uh, you know, in the studio, you always drink a ton of coffee, probably more than you should. You get all jittery and, you know, then you have to try and go record. Um, you know, so coffee is just part of the journey. And I think overseas, when you leave, you go to Europe and you go down to, to Latin America, you know, that's where you really get a different experience with coffee. They drink mostly espresso type drinks. You know, the drip coffee is more of a North American style. Uh, the Japanese have adopted it as well. Um, but for the most part, you know, most other places around the world, you know, again, especially Latin America and Europe, you know, it's mostly, um, you know, espresso type drinks and the coffee is a different part of the, of the day. They don't, you know, it, you know, usually coffee is served something like after a meal, a quick shot of espresso or maybe with a dessert. It's kind of the, the end cap of, of, of a meal. Uh, we Americans have adapted a completely different style with it. So, you know, it's just interesting, you know, when you travel the world, um, you know, that bass guitar that I play has taken me on more journeys to more really far out places than I could have ever imagined, you know, playing music. And then you get to experience the culture, the politics, the religion, just the whole, you know, the whole culture of, of, of different nations. And, um, you know, I find that, uh, yeah, certainly alcohol is always, you know, is very often a part of that. But a lot of the other, you know, a lot of the, uh, um, a lot of cultures around the world, like they don't drink alcohol, you know, it's, it's not something that's, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, probably because of religious purposes and things like that. But, uh, you know, coffee's everywhere. <laughs> coffee seems to be good for everybody. Now, now you said, you know, that your bass is taking you around the world. When did you pick up the bass? When did you sit there and decide to start playing? Were, were <clears> you a music? Were you as a kid? Were you just really turned on the music or what made you take this process to become a bass and be some, <clears> become such a good bassist? Sure. Well, thank you. I mean, I started at age 11. I was, um, you know, I rode the school bus. My brother and I would get picked up very early in the route at 7.15 a.m. And we'd have to sit on the bus for like an hour until we got to school. And uh, fortunately, bus drivers would turn on the a.m. radio and listen to a lot of WLS a.m. out of Chicago. And at the time, you know, this was the mid-70s, mid to late 70s. So, you know, 74, 75, 76, like in that area. And so bands that were coming out, of course, were sweet. Uh, Sticks, Kiss, Ario Speedwagon, Foreigner, you know, uh, Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, you know, this, you know, really bands that are still around to this day because that's how that's how great their music really was, you know, and 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 that's what I heard hard rock, and for whatever reason, man, the bass just called out to me, and I just pursued it with a passion. I got a bass. I'd come home after school. I'd sit in the basement of our farmhouse, and I was pretty much self-taught. Um, I had some musical instruction through playing tenor saxophone in the orchestra band and taking some piano lessons. So I did, I, you know, I do have some formal music education, but the bass was largely just driven by the passion for rock and roll. Now, when do you decide that you think you're going to make this your career? Because the funny thing is what people don't know is you also have a record label and you just re you just got combat records. So you're very involved in music, whether it's not playing or, you know, and managing and stuff like that. When did, when did you decide and say, put it in your head that, you know what, this is going to be my career. Or did you just say, I just want to play and let's see what happens. Age 11. <laughs> when I got that bass, I mean, it really was, that was it. It was like, I got a bass. I just, you know, you could transition from, oh, I want to be a fireman. Oh, I want to be a policeman. Hey, I think I'm going to be a bass player. Done. You know, and, and, you know, that's all I've done ever since. And I never thought about anything else. Um, it, my father, fortunately, also an entrepreneur, um, 
have a family farm that's been handed down several generations in Minnesota. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it, uh, fortunately my father, I had, my brother decided he was going to farm and, and, and run the farm, which was nice because then my father supported me in going to California after high school and pursuing my, my musical passions. And, and my dad didn't understand music, but he understood business, you know, okay. so he understood, um, what I was doing, how I was really, I was always a guy involved in business too. You know I mean? Not only would I, you know, really woodshed and, and put my heart into the music, but I also understood like, you have to do this yourself. You know, I'd be the guy arranging, uh, you know, photo shoots and putting together press kits and talking to the booking agents and, you know, my dad supported me in getting a, <laughs> he gave me the family van. He helped us buy a trailer. He gave us a shed on the farm and insulated it and put a furnace in it so we could rehearse in it in the winter. And, you know, it, be, that be, it became my job. I mean, really, from the very beginning, it's, uh, you know, it's it's what I've done. And, you know, as the saying goes, you know, if you do something you like, you never really do end up going to work. You know, it's just kind of, you know, you just wake up and um, like today, you know, I woke up and looked at my schedule and was like, all right, and breakfast, go to the gym and get on the phone with you and got a couple of other things to do later today. Got a little coffee business. I'm working on some songs. I'm playing with Alice Cooper and Rob Halford this coming weekend at Dallas's uh, Christmas pudding event. And so I'm working on some tunes and, um, you know, that's my, my life is at, at 53, the same as it was at age 11, quite honestly. It's just wake up and do music. Now, when, you know, when Megadeth started, what, you know, how did you decide what music you're going to play? And was it hard to try to break that market? Because it was a, it was a different time. I mean, how did you guys come about with your sound? And then I want to talk to you later about the record company, how you're getting bands that are, you know, heavier, which is great because you're giving, you know, different uh, breaks. But how did you decide on the sound you're going to play? And what was it like trying to break in at that time? Well, Megadeth was pretty easy because Dave had just come out of Metallica. Um, Dave is a very focused, very driven person and has a very charismatic sound to his music. And he was writing something. I mean, as soon as I heard him play, I went, wow, that is really cool. You know, and of course, this was 1983 Hollywood. And the things were around us were, you know, Quiet Riot was at the top of the charts. Uh, Motley Crue was blowing up. Rat. Um, you know, it was, you know, Van Halen, of course, was already a massive band out of Los Angeles. So, you know, the L.A. sound <clears throat> was was all around us. And Dave, you know, he just said, he goes, we're not going to premiere the band in L.A. We're going to go up to San Francisco, where he had just come from with Metallica. And we went up to San Francisco to debut the group a few months later in 1984. And it really was. I mean, it was, you could really see it like this was the heart. This was the epicenter of thrash metal. And thrash was really the combination of, our age group, we grew up with Black Sabbath and Sex Pistols records. We had punk rock and heavy metal in our veins, and, and we, we basically, kind of unknowingly, we forged the two genres together, and that created thrash metal. Now, was it easy for you to get a record deal, and has that, if there was a problem, has that come with you as, as you've developed into, we could say, a record executive somewhat? Was it easy for you to get a deal right off the bat, or how was the process for you? <clears throat> Well, it, it, it was to the effect that, you know, everybody was really, Dave was a real, he was a real star, you know, on his own and also inside of Metallica. You know, I could tell that up in San Francisco, Dave had a big following. I mean, our first shows, we played to like 500 seat clubs. They were packed. They were sold out. I mean, people were waiting with bated breath what's Dave Mustaine's next move going to be. And so when we debuted Megadeth, um, you know, we, we, we at least started a couple runs up the ladder because of his notoriety and his celebrity. Now, 
we were still a brand new band. And of course we, you know, we had to, you know, carve our own path and make our own way. And to some degree we were a bit in the, in the shadows of Dave's past with Metallica, um, which, you know, I think about our second record by Peace Cells, which was buying, which by then we were on Capitol Records that, you know, we were able to really step out on our own and, and, you know, be, become our, our own band on our own merits. But, you know, our first, yeah, there was certainly interest. I mean, right away there was, you know, Johnny Z from Megaforce who, um, you know, had signed Metallica and Anthrax, uh, Brian Slagle from Metal Blade had certainly had, had, had his eye on, on Megadeth and, and then uh, there's a couple of other ones. Uh, what pre Roadrunner? They were called Road Racer Records, and um, we took a meeting with with uh, with the presidents um, to discuss, you know, what that would look like. And we ended up settling with Combat Records, um, which was a uh, independent label. They were one of the players. Again, there's the people I just mentioned. They were the players in the independent metal seen um back in those days where bands like megadeth we'd start at independence and then the goal was is to get signed up to a major label and then you know they that that's where you really built your career was at the major label level um but we signed with combat our first record killing is my business we did with them i mean their budget was tiny it was like eight thousand bucks to make a record <laughs> um you know clearly not a uh, you know not a sustainable you know um, amount of money to survive as a band. So, I mean, you know, we really, everybody had to, you know, we just kind of working jobs and doing things to, to support themselves. But, you know, Dave and I were, you know, we were pretty much joined together on this venture. Um, you know, and not, not pretty much. In fact, we were a hundred percent. I mean, we, you know, we were homeless together. We lived in the van. We lived with whatever, you know, uh, you know, female would let us to move in. We've lived with people that we would just sort of move in with their friends and they didn't know we lived with them, but we kind of moved in. And I think once our mail started showing up in their mailbox, they're like, Hey, wait a minute. How long are you guys staying here? And, uh, you know, we did, we would, we were in full survival mode. You know, we lived in our rehearsal place. I mean, we, we did everything we necessary to get Megadeth off the ground. And, you know, and that, and I, I tell that to every band, you know, fast forward to today that are, that's on my label is it's like, hey, man, you know, there is no free ride. There's no free lunch. And, you know, no one just shows up with some big check and turns you into a rock star. I mean, this this is about, you know, like if you want to do this for money, quit now, go to college, get your law degree, be a doctor, go make your money and enjoy your life. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're here because this is your life and this is your passion and you're David Ellison, you know, with the heart of the 11-year-old that I just talked about, you know, where this is all you want to do. Well, then welcome to the welcome to the tribe, welcome to the club. But it, you know, there's your shovel over in the corner. Go start digging because you know there. This this is something that if you don't want it, you have to want it more than everybody else in your team. And and if you do, like Dave and I did, you know, then you have at least a shot. There's no guarantee, but you at least have a shot of of, of having some kind of success with this. Now you mentioned Combat Records, and I know you recently relaunched them. You did what, what? Why did Combat Records disappear? And what did you have to do to bring it back? And was it because you remembered that you and Dave had recorded with them, and they gave you a chance? Is that one of the reasons why you went after them? Well, I'll, I'll be I'll be honest with you. Our experience with Combat Records back in that day was not favorable. It was not fun. It was not enjoyable. It was quite honestly, it was pretty shitty. <laughs> to be honest with you, so <laughs> when the opportunity came up to uh, you know, to purchase the, the, the name and the brand and relaunch it. I mean, I quite honestly, my first thought of it was like, 
music had 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 become, you know, sort of this disposable commodity. We became just a backing track for something else, for an app, for a car commercial, for whatever, you know. Um, yet, you know, music, whether it's applauded or if it, whether it's just on the on the on the back, you know, kind of a background, you know, music, it's. You know, it's like food. It's like a, it's like a sustainable part of who we are as people. You know, um, and the inspiration that it gives. And I mean, I just hear from fans all around the world all the time how maybe a song that we've written that how it just it really impacted and changed someone's life. And I myself, of course, have had that experience. And even though you know, look, new generations receive content and they listen and they purchase or don't purchase <laughs> music in a different way than I did growing up. You know, you know, the worst thing we can do is as a generational, you know, lineage is stand on the sidelines and go, well, back in my day, we used to do it like this and find fault with young people, man. I mean, young people are here to change the world, man, and life moves on and things change. And, you know, it, it's important to, to support young people and support their vision and support new music, support new um, you know, new methods and methodology, man. I mean, so as, as a label, as much as, yeah, look, we manufacture CDs, we manufacture vinyl, we also do digital. I mean, we, we need to do all of it because our role is to help artists get their music to their public. That's really what our role is. We are, we're a servant, you know, we're, we're a piece in the middle. And I think where the record business got itself in trouble is when they thought they were the king of the hill and they ran the roost. And, and you know, the Internet quickly destroyed that model. Um, so I'm, I'm very much of a different mindset, you know, everything we do is, is, you know, we're here to, to serve the, the customer and to serve our artists. Now, combat is a division of EMP, I believe, right? Yes, it is. Yep. Now tell me about EMP and what's the difference between, you know, EMP is your production label. Like what's the difference between that and a combat? What, what, what are the two differences in the two different hats you wear for both companies? <laughs> well, when we started <clears throat> the label, and originally, um, I started it because I needed to re-release a uh, an art, a young female artist that we have called Dalskin. In a lot of ways, you know, they're the epitome of, of tomorrow's music. You know, um, as a as a young rock group, um, you know, they're a warp tour band. They're very much in the you know punk emo hard rock metal world. That's that's their world. So when we formed the group in EMP, which is an acronym for Ellison Music Production. I thought, you know, I, I watched what, what labels like Capital and things, you know, had done where they, they had a broader stroke that, because, you know, labels, I mean, like Combat, you become very affiliated. We, when you think of that label, you think of the artists that are on it. So I thought, you know, I want to I have a label group, EMP label group, so under it we can have different genre-related imprints. You know, we just started Outlaw Records, which we put Ron Keel on. Um, because he has this very kind of outlaw rock and roll, almost country rock sound, that's going to have that type of music. We had EMP Underground, which well, we have EMP Underground, which we put really, really hard metal groups on that on that division. Um, and now Combat, we very much want this to be a thrash uh, and kind of power metal uh, division that we put only those bands on it. So. I think it's important that labels be also be, they support the genre and the lifestyle of the of the music and the listeners that buy the records from that. 
Now, how do you decide, like with Dollskin, what caught your eye with Dollskin and what made you want to work with them? And I mean, you know, you say it's the, you know, the emo and the punk and stuff like that, but what catches your eye? Does something sit there? Do you sit there and listen and go, okay, this is someone I want to work with. How does the whole relationship start with you and how far do you nurture that relationship? Well, I saw them at my at, at their very first gig, which was a high school talent show. And uh, the drummer went to the school, the same school that my son went to. And uh, the girls apparently met at School of Rock. It's where they met. And the drummer Megan said, "Hey, there's this this kind of this kind of battle of the bands thing at my school. I want to put something together." She put this thing together. They quickly came up with a name, Dalskin, and they went out and they played. And I mean, they really had it. You know, they had the look, they had the sound, they reunited as a team. And, and you know, whereas a lot, and it's funny because I compared it to like about nine bands before. Hey, great singer, and eh, the rest of the band, not so much. Hey, cool drummer, and eh, too bad they don't have a great lead singer. Dollskin had the whole package. You know, a, a, a rock star of a lead singer, great musicianship from Alex, the guitar player, and, and Nicole, the bass player. They had a look. The drummer Megan, you know, very much a, a, a driving force of the group, one of the you know the main songwriters of the band, and and I just stayed in touch with him. I said, "Wow, that was really impressive. That was cool to see," you know, and um, and I just stayed in touch with them. A couple years later, I took them to the studio. We, you know, see what they had. We, I determined they had about enough music for an EP. Um, we pushed that out, and um, you know, and that's when I quickly started to learn things about the record business. I learned why EPs are favorable. Uh, to sort of launch a group, but they're difficult to retail, which is why we relaunched the In Your Face uh, EP as In Your Face again as an LP, so that it would be it would hit the right you know retail spot, and we could relaunch it and, and added some extra uh, songs to it. And that was really the first release on on EMP label group, along with another thrash group out of Colorado called uh, Arising Chaos, and uh, another uh, band out of uh, out of Iowa called Green Death. And those became, you know, kind of our, our early pillars of, of the groups that we that we released. And then we quickly, Tom quickly started signing a whole bunch of other artists. And, you know, then we found now kind of a sweet spot with a lot of legacy artists. Um, Mark Slaughter has had, a, has had an incredible run with his uh, latest record, Halfway There. We put out uh, um, Doyle's record from The Misfits. Uh, we just put out uh, the autograph record, Get Off Your Ass. And um, and then we you know started discussions with Ron Keel who man I remember Ron his first his he was one of the first bands I saw his band Steeler was one of the first bands I saw when I moved to L A back in 1983 so you know a lot of these guys who were all well into the game and had their thing up and running you know kind of as we were getting Megadeth up and running are now on my label and and again I I feel you know very blessed to be able to continue to support their careers. Because they built, you know, really incredible legacies, and um, and to be able to help their music be still heard by their fans. Now, because you've been in a business and people know you, do you do some of these younger artists look to you towards a mentor type? Because you know you've been through a lot in your career, and do you sit there and do you have? Can you notice if there's a problem arising because you've been there and you've had a huge career and then the band broke up and then you get back? I mean, do you have that knowledge and do young people want to listen to you and do you impart that on them? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. And I mean, for definitely, most definitely with, with um, you know, with, sorry about that, with, um, oops, hang on, hang on. Uh, with, uh, most definitely, sorry, the office phone ringing here. <laughs> uh, most definitely with, um, 
Um, you know, with Dalskin for sure. I, um, you know, I've, I've taken on the management role with them because I, I, I believe me, I see a lot of of everything I just went through. You know, um, you know, going through, you know, starting out to just, you know, get a record out, get get some attention, start to get some traction, start to have things heat up to a point where, um, you know, where where now they're. You know, they're they're you know the phone's ringing our way. You know, it's been about two years of me picking up the phone, calling out, and now the phone's ringing our way, which is which is incredible. And that's the kind of traction that you know when you start to get that, you go, wow, okay, you know, this this this, this is gonna this is getting some wind in its sails. And at the same time, you know, Tom and I we did some phone calls that we did kind of as um, you know a little bit of some A and R scouting. You know, we actually ended up discovering some some pretty cool groups. We ended up designed for kind of that very thing like you know send us your music we'll listen to it and then we'll have a phone call and we'll do like uh you know um you know kind of a consultation call and it was really interesting on those calls because you know as in a lot of things when you help someone else you not only feel good about having that you know to be able to to hand down some experience to them um but you also you also kind of end up, you know, in a weird way, you kind of end up helping yourself because you're kind of looking at, okay, well, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, and how am I doing it? And, and am I heeding the advice that I just gave to somebody? So, you know, those calls, I found them to be every bit as beneficial for me as they probably were for the artists that we were talking to. Now, what is it like? I mean, you know, because you're working with young artists, some young artists. What was it like for you when you were young, when you guys were going up, you know, when you were rising to fame? I mean, you've been there. Is is it a hard thing to deal with? I mean, and you guys became very big, and then you know, you know, you and Dave had a feud or whatever. But what is that like? I mean, what is it like to sit there and start rising? How did your life change at that point? Because you seem like a you know a very humble, relaxed guy, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, Mega that's becoming giant. What was your life like back then? I mean, and was it hard to keep it all in control? Well, you know, uh, I think growing up on the farm helped. You know. Um, and, um, you know, my, my dad, you know, my dad was always telling me, he goes, you're not great until someone else says you are meaning like, don't get too full of yourself, you know, do the work, you know, your job is to do the work, practice, rehearse, you know, tweak your show, always make it better, constantly improve. And, and, and it was, it was kind of interesting to have that, that advice, you know, from him. Um, and, and it's interesting as I've met other people, you know, and who have been successful uh, in in my you know in my career, they usually don't gloat over their successes. They're usually you know looking at things like, you know, yeah, but we can tweak these lighting cues. Yeah, we need to rearrange that song list. Yeah, we need to do this. You know, they're they're always constantly critiquing, and I and and you know and not to the point where where you're you know sort of self-deprecating and you're never happy with your success because I think you, you you know look if you're not enjoying what you're doing you're in the wrong line of work but there is also this this sort of drive inside you to always continue to want to give your fans the best experience that they can you know that they can have and um, you know I think that's that's been a big part of the focus of Megadeth so as you know look from the outside you know and you know we our songs are on MTV and you know, we were, you know, rising, you know, pretty, you know, quickly in the, in the public eye. But internally, you know, look, you know, keeping four guys together is not always that easy, you know, and we had lineup changes early on. 
um, which were not planned but had to happen in order for the, in order for Megadeth to survive. And you know, and then we, we we ended up going through a few of them. And it's it was never planned that way. It wasn't put. To, we didn't start the band like that. But it's just what we had to do to keep things going. And um, you know, so it, it's you know been different managers and agents and you know and dealing with you know, windfalls of money that come in and, um, you know, you realize, you know, there's, you know, look, if money is your only aim, there will never be enough money um, because no matter how much you make, you will spend it. So um, I think to, you know, to not have been handed a huge wad of cash up front and learning how to methodically, you know, understand finances and those things, I think that's, you know, something that, that I'm, you know, that I'm blessed to have had those experiences to learn how to deal with that, you know, gradually rather than, you know, getting a ton of money and killing yourself with it. Now, when you broke up, what what was your uh, direction? What did you want to do then? Because it seems like, you know, you, you have a good mind. And as I said, you know, the record company started a while ago and the coffee started, you know, not too long ago. But what do you do when you're, when you're, it's sort of your identity. How do you deal with that? And where did you think that your career would go? And did you ever think that it would lead to you, you know, managing a band called Dollskin, having combat records? I mean, what goes through a guy's mind when the band breaks up? You have a few, so it's your friend. What goes through a person's mind when they're going through that? Well, you know, good question. Um, you know, in 2002, when the group suddenly came to an end, um, there were some things that, that I knew, which was, you know, I was concerned about my own personal finances. I was concerned that, you know, that I, you know, might be living, um, outside of my means or at the stratosphere of my means. And so when the band ended, I, first thing I did is I quickly rearranged my lifestyle. Um, and I, I had some offers to go play with people. I, you know, my kids were real young, so I wanted to be home to be with them, to be part of them growing up. And so, you know, I had to make some hard decisions. You know, do I just want to be on the road being a rock star, um, you know, just being a side man, or do I want to be home being part of, you know, active with my family growing up, which I did. And I, I chose that route, which then led to some other things. I took a job as a consultant working for uh, PD Electronics, doing artist relations and marketing with them. I enrolled in college and finished up my four-year business degree. Um, and at the same time, F5 uh, fell together around me. I just went and played on my friend Steve's demo for something. And suddenly a band formed out of that. And then a couple of other bands formed out of that. And, uh, or, you know, during that time, this, this other group that I had, Temple Brutality and Killing Machine with these couple uh, records that I played on. And, and all of a sudden, I got really active with a whole bunch of things. So I got to have a really active music career. Um, and as well as, you know, working with PV, you know, I really got to really get a, a really un a terrific understanding of global marketing, global manufacturing, and then going to school. And it's funny because, you know, going to college and studying business while I'm in business was an entirely different experience than just studying business and then being a bass player. Um, so, you know, that, that season when I was away from Megadeth was probably one of the best seasons of my life. Um, for really just grooming me to be an adult, you know, um, and to, and I, and I really took it, to, you know, it's funny. I see bands that have never done anything other than just be in one band all the time. And I, I, I appreciate the experiences that I had to go out and do some other things in my life. Because when I came back to Megadeth in 2010, I think I, I came back a much better bass player, a much better musician, a much better businessman, a much better adult, hopefully a, even 
a much better friend and and a and a much stronger and much much better bandmate uh, for the band. So I think I you know I'd like to think everybody benefit benefited from that. How did that happen? How did you get back? I mean, and it's thinking when you got back, you know, you already had so much stuff under your belt, as you said, which is you said you were a more of a you know more mature, more you know adult, more you know knowing what you want and you've seen the other pastures was it was it like coming home when you first hit the stage again or when you guys talked how does a band get back together you know it's it's got to be weird it's got to be like you know getting back with a girlfriend that you broke up with like eight years ago well it's weird you know dave and i had had several conversations you know during you know what i call my off season so to speak um, you know, Dave was active with the band. He was, um, you know, and on the one hand, I was happy for Dave because he got to do so. I know he was very frustrated in the 90s with managers and producers and people always steering him off of his, you know, Dave's very focused, man. And he's got a very, you know, he, he's not a guy who likes to be just always moved off of his path. And during the 90s, he was he was pretty resilient. He was about as um sort of compromising as, as, as he could be. But, you know, then we also started to see a lot of things not bode well for Megadeth as a result from that. And I know when, when, when it all came back together in 2009, and he said, he goes, look, this is, I, this is going to be like when I was in control of the band back in the beginning, and I was running things. And, you know, which is why, you know, though I think those years, you know, that I was away, I mean, Dave was very, you know, he, he realigned and reset the bar for Megadeth. And, you know, to be to be a thrash band again, and it was actually, ironically, it was something we talked about on the bus, uh, even when Marty Friedman was in the band in 1999 on the Risk tour. You know, about hey, this is not working. We need to we need to go back to our roots and be a thrash band. Like like we have we have lost the course here, and um, and you know, so in, you know, so as, as Dave and I were you know talking during those times, I mean, there's always a part of me that felt like you know, this is. You can't go back and revisit something, but it's almost like I knew it was going to come around in the front windshield again, and then it would be something ahead. And you know, when it's ahead of you, it's it, it's forward motion. You know, to go back to something, yeah, that never works, man. It's it, there's a reason, you know, the things usually kind of don't work in the past, you know. Um, and so it was it was cool. I mean, you know, coming coming into it um, in 2010 with a new attitude, a new spirit. I think for both me and Dave, and I think you know the fans were happy, and it was it was just you know it was one of those where quite honestly it was it was very easy. It was not you know we weren't trying to force it. It just lined up, and the time was right. And I mean the door opened, I walked in, and you know and and you know and to Dave's credit too, you know that was that was a big hurdle for him, you know for you know to just kind of say hey man welcome home you know it's great to have you back and and let's go do this together and it, it really you know really really feel like 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 two brothers you know brothers in arms back doing what we were put on the planet to do together now you also a while ages ago you were involved about that because i'm a big christmas guy i love i love the christmas uh maybe the northern light orchestra yeah what what was that what was that yeah well my friend ken mary um who i met uh on the peacells tour when we toured with alice cooper he was the drummer in alice's band um back on the constrictor tour and uh, he, ironically, lives here in Phoenix by me. And um, we began talking when I first moved here in '93. We, we, you know, kind of, you know, um, you know, struck up our friendship again. And and so he called me one day. He said, "Hey, you got this thing? I'll call it Northern Light Orchestra. It's going to be a bunch of different, you know, guys of our age group playing on it. And see if you might want to, you know, put some place, place some bass on it." I said, "Yeah, sure, why not?" 
So I went down the street and played on it. <laughs> and I, I love the tunes. They're really cool. They're nice, simple, happy, uplifting, cool tunes. And, um, you know, and it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, a true Christmas story and, um, Christ centered Christmas story. And, you know, I was raised a Lutheran kid, you know, so, you know, to me, the, the Christmas story is not a foreign thing for me. I kind of grew up with it, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, it, ironically, it's funny because we actually, on EMP, um, Ken rang me a couple months ago and, and we talked about putting it out through EMP. So actually it's funny. EMP has now released, um, I think this is the third, uh, the third Northern Light Orchestra record. So we actually, we just, we just put it out. So, um, it's up on iTunes and, uh, um, on the digital platforms. So, um, yeah, so go, go check it out. Now, what, what, what does the future hold for you? What do you want to, where do you want to see EMP go and where do you want to see combat records go? And are you going to constantly start really scouring for new bands or are you going to wait for people to hit you up? You know, it's a combination of both. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm really lucky. You know, my partner, Tom, he's got great ears. He, he really understands the business. You know, it's one thing for me to hear something and like it. That's very different from an A&R guy really hearing something and knowing that it has some, you know, some, some legs to go the distance, you know? Um, I mean, what I saw with Dalskin, you know, that was, there's not many of those out there, you know what I mean? Especially young new bands and, you know, really, you know, kind of have the whole package. And so Tom is great with that. And yeah, I mean, we're very focused with what combat is, you know, I know in combat's period, um, after it got, you know, the original owner, Barry Coburn, after he sold it, um, it, you know, it, it sort of, I, I believe it was, I think purchased by Koch, which then became E1 and they had it, you know, there was, you know, a handful of releases that were put out during that time. Um, you know, to me, combat is a, I, and I really have come to appreciate it this last week since we did the announcement on it. You know, what that label, that logo, those t-shirts that people owned, those camouflage looking t-shirts, you know, there's, there's a real identity back to Megadeth's core. And again, that thrash metal origin, you know, the 80s thrash metal origin. So to me, that is a very priceless asset that we have. And it really needs to be, you know, it, it really needs to be, you know, carried forward um, with the right look and, and the right identity with it. You know, it's not something that I think that some other records were put out on that that were not thrash and heavy metal records. And I think that's probably why it struggled over the years. So, you know, our aim with it is that it very much, everything we do with it has a thread that ties back to its origins that people are so just really keen on. Well, you had mentioned earlier Mark Slaughter. Mark's been on the show and Stephen Lynch from Autograph has been on the show. And there are bands that, you know, we all love. And, you know, and they've somewhat lost a little bit, you know, they've lost the home. So you've, you've gone out and revived them, hopefully. How do you, how, will, will you sign other bands like them? I mean, well, is this something that it's something you want to do because you remember those guys? And did you, you know, from back in the day? Yeah, I, for sure. I mean, you know, Mark has been a, a friend of mine for, you know, for many, many years. And I, you know, when I got to L.A., we started Megadeth, Autograph was blown up. Steve Lynch was just, he was one of the, you know, one of the guitar heroes of that day. And, and, uh, and, and cool guys, you know, I mean, bands that are able to stay in the game this long and, and, um, you know, again, there, there, there's, there's a real passion for their music and there's a real passion for their fans. And, you know, again, if I can be the wind in their sails and help them, 
you know, to, you know, to really, that's one of the things we like to do is we, you know, we got all these bands on the billboard charts again. Um, you know, we've really given them an incredible look, you know, and, and really got them propped up, which then again, helps their touring business and helps everything else in, in their wheelhouse as a, as a band, you know, to, to, to be able to go out and, and, and really thrive and, and, and have continued success. So I, I'm thrilled that EMP could be a part of that. Now you uh in in 2018 you're going to be in May and June you're going to be out on the road again. What's it like when you play in these big festivals? Is it still as exciting as it was when you were playing the 500 uh, rooms? You know, 500 people rooms when you first started out. I mean, I know you've changed. You're older now. They're bigger crowds. The people know more of your songs. What is that like for you to play them? And then and also another question to follow up on that. What is it like when you see? people who are bringing their kids to see you yeah it's good it's, it's terrific i mean these you know look the, the megadeth megadeth has always been a, a, such a cool and fun live band i mean from our very first shows we walked out on stage and i mean the mosh pits broke out and people like stage diving off the pa into the crowd and you know it, it's just look we have as much fun watching the crowd as they do hopefully watching us believe me it's a very interactive process and um you know so that certainly hasn't changed i mean you walk out of these huge festival decks i mean it's just a sea of people for as far as the eye can see those are great also playing our own shows is great you know and of course we you know we're not mostly playing arenas and these kind of places so um it's it's great when we you know have a little bit more control over our set list and everything um or the set time i should say but um you know, we get to do a little bit of all of it, and I think that's what keeps us fresh, keeps us on our toes, and, um, you know, and, you know, at the same time, we'll do an acoustic thing, or we'll do, like, a small fan club event, you know, and the fans are right up in front of us, and they know every word, and, and so we, you know, we get to do all of it, which is, you know, we're, we're truly of the blessed. Now, what's your long-term goal for Elfson Coffee? What is, what is the Elfson Coffee? Where would you like to see that? Would you like to see it, like become huge i mean of course you know everyone wants to make a lot of money but would you like to see it become huge or would you like to see be something stay like you know an in thing like it's cool like your fans dig it and other people dig it where do you want to see it go yeah i i think that is what it is you know and again this is a piece of my lifestyle you know it's 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 like a song you know that song is a part of you it's part of your dna I mean, every, every, you know, it seems like every few weeks I got someone walking in the door telling me how they think the coffee company should go and you should do this and you should do that. You need to be in here and you need to be there. You should be in the grocery stores and big, 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 big and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, look, man, you know, to me, coffee is just like starting a band. First, you make a demo, then you sign your independent record deal and then you go on tour, you know, and you play the clubs and the bars and you go out and you do the work. So, you know, to me to roll up my sleeves and do the work of the coffee company and start it from the ground for ground zero, which is what we've done, you know, that's an experience. I'm just used to that, you know, and when something grows organically um, and grows, and I'm not talking about organic coffee, I'm just talking organically was a connection with your people. When you grow something organically, you know, to me, coffee should be just like a band. You know, you can, you can sense when, when a coffee company or a food company has sold out versus really stay to their, to their core values and, and, and to, to who they really are. And that, that to me is important. You know, it's, it's, it, I do it for fun. It's an enjoyment, you know, as long as we can make enough money to buy some more beans and buy some more bags and make some more customers happy. As far as I'm concerned, that's a win. You might have to do a small batch of decaf because some of us, you know, we don't drink caffeine because, you know, heart conditions. You know, it's funny that uh, th- now those are the, those are the things I listen to. 
You know, when someone says, hey, man, can you, because some people have asked about organic and some people have asked about different things. And, you know, and the one that has come up uh, from you and my mother-in-law, ironically, is organic or uh, decaf coffee. And and I realize as, as uh, you know, even myself as a coffee drinker, I mean, I don't like to like just always drink to the point that I'm just nervous and twitching. You know, it's, it's, it's to me, it's, 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 you know, when I'm sitting there playing guitar, I got a cup of coffee next to me, you know, so it's, uh, um, you know, so yeah, point taken. So I, I hear your request. And now, what where do you, what are you expecting from Dollskin? Where do you want to take them? Well, you know, to them again, they're again, it's this organic connection with their fans. I think in the beginning, it was mostly about taking them out, propping them up, giving them a look, taking around the track once, and, and let's let's see how it responds. And and you know, they were very young, and now you know, they're all everyone's uh, you know over eighteen, you know, so which kind of helps them. Um, from a, they've always been very mature. They've always been very wise and mature beyond the years. Their families really support them, um, and you know, and they're and they're friends. And so, as the going gets tough on the road, as it does for anybody, they've always been they've always been friends, and that has helped keep them together as a team. Um, because when you start to see chinks in the armor on that level, doesn't matter how much money you throw at it, doesn't matter how much success you have, it's eventually just going to break and fall apart anyway. So they've got their 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 core is solid and that's something i keep an eye on with them because it's not worth you know it's not worth trying to run and take it to the very top if it's just going to cost them their you know their their friendships and you know you know just rip everything apart for them it's so to me that's valuable it's such a valuable thing because we're people you know we're humans it isn't just about songs we're people too you know and and um you know as as now this last year especially with the second record that they put out manny picks a dream girl and being on the work tour, they really started to connect with a fan base. And to me, that was kind of phase two of their development was to see if we can really connect with their fans. And that now has really started to happen this year. And, and you know, we're uh, looking at some overseas um, touring now, and we've got a, a big year set up for them in 2018. So, um, you know, again, just b- building it one step at a time. Keep it, keep it real, keep it believable, keep it organic, and um, and just keep on making it work. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, it's great talking to you. You know, you, you have so much going on. Your website, well, i got to ask you, your website's davidellison.net. Did someone have your .com? No, I'm .com. I'm .com. I, I think I have the .net as well. So okay. So drive traffic to everything. Because so I'm yeah, on it right now. I'm on it .net, yep. and it's a great website, and it shows everything. Now, do you, do you tweet a lot? Uh, you know, I, I do some social media stuff. Like when I'm on the road, I'll, you know, do a Instagram live or a Facebook live and some stuff like that backstage. It's kind of fun, cool things that, uh, fans don't get to see every day. Um, so to me, those are fun. Take the fans backstage with us and, you know, get to kind of see into our lives a little bit. Um, but a lot of the social media, you know, we run from the record company, we run from, uh, um, you know, I, a lot of, you know, Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, a lot of those things are, you know, sort of, they're, look, they're all, they're all intertwined, but we, we push out a lot of content, a lot of it's informational, some of it's engagement stuff, you know, um, and, uh, you know, we've got a lot going on, yeah, between coffee, the label, um, and, and just my own personal career, things that I'm doing, so I, you know, I, I, uh, you know, the internet's changed a lot, man, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's made, it's brought so much within reach and you can, you know, communicate so easily with people and let people know what you're doing. And, 
and um, and also get some some interaction, some response from them too. You know, it's not just a one way thing. It's nice to be able to get some feedback, and especially with coffee. You know, it's like, hey, what kind of stuff are you guys liking? Are you liking what we're doing? Is there something that you like? You know, let us know to see if it's something that might be you know something that we can whip up and bring to you from from our company. Well, I want to thank you for taking that time, David. It was great talking to you. People, go to his website. You get all the links there. Go get the coffee. You know what? He's a rocker. He, he knows coffee. And follow him on Twitter. Go to loads of good things. Follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 660 episodes up. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. And it's Christmas time. And the perfect stocking, stock, stocking stuffer is my cookbook. Remember when I got out of the hospital with a heart condition, I wrote a, a basic cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. Uh, no big list of ingredients. And it's basically recipes for one. So you can get it at Amazon or you can go to stopthesalt.com and I'll sign it for you and I'll make more money. So people, go get that Ellison coffee. Drink it up. Drink lots of it. You know what? Because it's cool stuff. Steve Cooper, I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.